Hello and welcome to episode 95 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Evan Drellick. Evan covers the Red Sox for NBC Sports Boston and is also the author of the new book, The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Boston Red Sox. Evan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks, Ross. Really appreciate it. Well, Evan, I ask everyone this right at the top of the podcast. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. Steroids? Is that, a, is that an acceptable answer? Yeah, um, I, big user. I was kind of, <laughs> yes, I, I was a latecomer to baseball uh, in so much as I was already, I guess it would have been fifth grade, going into sixth grade in 98. The Mets got Mike Piazza. I grew up in New York. I didn't grow up in Boston, which was an interesting element of writing a book about the Red Sox. But Mets get Piazza, McGuire and Sosa um, do their thing, and that was what hooked me. So when people talk about, and I actually mentioned this uh, in the book, when people talk about steroids bringing people to baseball and that home run race impacting the game, I, I'm actually the living example of that. You know, I, People, I think, talk about that person a lot, but, but I really am that guy. I, I was captivated by, by McGuire and Sosa. Um, so that's, that's why I'm here. It's interesting because one of your chapters in the book is about Roger Clemens. At the end, you talked about how He's mostly thought about now as a steroid guy who's on the Hall of Fame ballot. And we do a lot of Hall of Fame talk on this podcast. It's what this podcast started out to be initially. And you are one of those people who will be voting in a few years that never covered the steroid era. So I'm curious if you've made up your decision as to what you'll do with players who are linked to steroids. The way I've looked at the Hall of Fame voting so far is as an honor, but um, something of a burden. My gut instinct is not to, is to not reward cheating. Uh, that, that's, that's just my first reaction. Um, I also am cognizant of the fact that you can't know who did what when, um, and that certainly at this point there probably are those who, who used. I, I'm not one of these people who thinks all cheating is equal. I, I don't believe that amphetamine use is equivalent to um, the muscle building and recovery substances, the testosterone and, and all the related stuff that we saw in the home run era in, uh, in the late 90s and in the early 2000s. Uh, that said, I, I, maybe in, in, the, in the interest of not excluding um, someone unfairly, the person I'm concerned with is, is, are those at the bottom, at the edge who, who don't get in because of those who used. So someone, there's, there's definitely some player who probably had he used would, would really have Hall of Fame stats right now, but right now is cusp. So I, I think if you let all the steroids guys in, fine. If you let in Clemens, but then I think you have to kind of lower the standard and let in those guys who, who look like they're on the cusp who might not get in otherwise because it, it's, it's, it's the non-user who, who is being punished in this instance. Um, you know, it, that, that's where I'm at right now, and, and I certainly know that argument. I don't look at it as, as solid. I, you know, I kind of reserve the right to change my mind on it, but um, I, I kind of would advocate for a bigger haul so that the people who didn't use can also be rewarded. I'm for that. I'm for putting in Bonds and Fred McGriff. So there you go. Put them both in and uh, acknowledge what Bonds right. did and move it, on. It's that kind of play. Yeah, McGriff's a decent example. He's usually the one people turn to. Let's get to your book, The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Red Sox. Let's start, I guess, with really the birth of what we know as Red Sox Nation now. That really started in 1967. Tell me a bit about the 1967 season. Part of the fun of doing this book was, I, I've been a Red Sox writer 
since tw- late 2010, realistically. I, I was at MLB.com. I was in L.A. They asked me to move to Boston as a backup writer to Ian Brown. Um, so 2011, 2012, I'm here. 2013, I'm also here for the World Series. Uh, that year, I was at MassLive.com. Then I move away to cover the Astros, and I come back to Boston in 2016 for the Herald, and now I'm at NBC Sports Boston. So, you know, I've covered, in total, I've covered the Red Sox for half a decade. But because I didn't grow up here, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't have this tremendous working, it didn't, I didn't have this tremendous working knowledge of the team's history. I certainly knew 1967 was a special year. Um, but, but, you know, if you had asked me a year ago to, to really break it down, um, not that I can remember uh, every detail of it now, but I, part of the joy was learning some of the history myself. You know, the, the research, it, it wasn't going over stories I heard for the first time necessarily. So, six, seven. I, I don't know if if Fenway and the Red Sox would be gone today necessarily, but it was at least possible. Dick Bresciani, uh, the late Red Sox team historian uh, and former uh, head PR person for the Red Sox, explained this to me in 2013. I was doing a story on Ebbets Field and why Ebbets didn't survive, but Fenway did. They, once the Braves left, it was possible the Red Sox could have left Boston too. At the very least, the threat was issued. Um, uh, ownership wanted to have a highway exit uh, right near Fenway. It, it, attendance was sinking in the 60s. It, you know, this, what we know as Red Sox Nation did not exist. And then you have the 67 season where the, the team, you have a new manager. Um, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a true out-of-nowhere type of season and feeling. And back then, there were much fewer distractions. It, it, they took over the city in a way. And if 67 d- does not happen, if we don't have uh, that team and, the, and, and you know, the most iconic moments, Rico Petrus being the final out um, on the last day of the season, uh, if that doesn't happen, it's at least possible that the Red Sox would have left. Uh, and, and, and even if, if they don't leave this mania that surrounds the team, it, that was the birth point. So, so one of the things I kind of ask in the book is which, which year is more important? Is it 2004, the year the curse breaks, or is it 67 where this whole uh, endeavor begins in the first place? You ultimately decided it was 2004, which I think was the right decision. But I'm curious how you balanced, you know, you're making the list and you're going through the history of the Red Sox and many of the great players and individuals that sort of made the franchise what it is. But for a long period of time, the Red Sox were associated with futility. They were associated with losing until recently, until 2004, when they broke through. And I think 2004 has to headline the book like this. But how do you balance the history of losing with the modern success of three championships and being a perennial contender? There's definitely an element of recency bias in what I chose to write about, uh, I think that's, in part, it, it, it's better that way because there are certain subjects that, uh, well, well, I think I could find a new angle or, or, or take a different tack on, on older ones, and, and there are certainly older subjects in the book. There's something to be said for writing about things you've seen and lived and experienced uh, and just are, are, are fresher in people's minds. So uh, there, there definitely were topics older that I that that easily could have been a chapter, but, but we chose. I think, I think there was there was some element of all right, let's let's favor uh, recent time. But you know, 2004 is already almost a decade and a half ago. You know, so it's kind of 
part of the intrigue for me was looking at it further removed because most of the books that have been written about that period were right after it, you know, which is understandable. Um, but even writing about Dave Roberts' steal, you know, going back over the details of, the, of that night, it, it's, it's amazing how much you can kind of forget with time. And, and so, so part of the joy for me was the stuff that I did watch intently, even though I did not grow up in Boston. Uh, and certainly as a Mets fan growing up, I want, I, believe me, I wanted to see the Yankees lose. So I, I was rooting as hard for the Red Sox. Uh, as anyone who wasn't a Red Sox fan, I would say. Um, so it, part, of the, part of the joy was reliving some more recent things. Um, but you, you, there's an argument to be made for, for older topics as well. You told a great little story in the book, in the Pedro Martinez chapter, about how you were in middle school when Pedro was at his dominance, when he was at his peak, and you were in love with the steroid hitters, but Pedro made you love pitching, even from afar, even being a Mets fan. You couldn't not be a Pedro fan. Tell me about what attracted you to Pedro as a kid. Oh, man, when the Mets signed Pedro, I, I went out and got, I spent every penny I had on, on an authentic jersey, you know, the next day, and those, you know, 250 bucks, which for a high school kid back then, uh, wasn't wasn't easy to to, to scrape up. Um, yeah, I, I remember, so 98 is, is the season I, I first started watching baseball. I did not watch the All-Star game that year, though. Um, so 99 is the first year I sit down and watch an All-Star game. And uh, my grandfather had, had in the previous fall, the fall of 98, gave me a signed autograph from Carl Hubble. My grandfather was a psychiatrist, a patient of his, gave him that autograph uh, because he knew that my grandfather had been at the 1934 All-Star Game when, when Hubble struck out uh, Murderer's Row uh, at the Polo Grounds. Um, Simmons, Cronin, Garrick, Fox, Ruth, and, and, and whatever order it was. So I'm watching the 99 All-Star Game, and, and certainly I knew who Pedro was, um, and I, I couldn't tell you if I'd really seen him pitch to that point, but because I'd fallen in love with baseball for McGuire and for Sosa, to see Pedro just absolutely overwhelm those guys uh, the way he did, it was just, I, you know, it, maybe it's, it's, it's because I'm so far removed. I don't remember watching a pitcher and, and being amazed up until that point. It just it, it was something I had not seen. Um, and, and look, we haven't really seen it since, you know, it, it'll probably be unmatched, um, but potentially for, for my lifetime. So, it, you know, I remember watching it and, and during, as he got the first four, uh, going to the second inning, Fox flashes on the screen, a mention of Carl Hubble, who, you know, I already had some affinity for because of my grandfather. So, it was kind of this instant connection um, with Pedro, and it was it was the one chapter I, I stepped back from, uh, the, you know, the third person reporter voice and just said, "Listen, this is my experience with Pedro. This is why I love the guy. I'm, I'm very jealous of Michael Silverman of the Herald, who wrote Pedro's uh, memoir uh, slash biography. You know, the, the book they wrote together. He, uh, he he's my all time favorite, and uh, I wasn't going to pretend otherwise writing that chapter. My connection to Pedro. I did grow up in Massachusetts. I grew up as a Red Sox fan and as a baseball fan. I'm older than you. I've got you by about a decade. But uh, So I started watching baseball in the mid-80s, and in the late 90s, it was a weird phase where it's really pre-internet, and there was no DVR yet. MLB extra innings didn't exist yet. So the, real, the way to watch games was either in person or on TV. And this was at a point where, for me, 
I was doing a lot of acting and a lot of theater, and I was out a lot of nights, and there at that time, none of the people I was hanging out with were interested in baseball. And it would have been very easy for me at that point to just give up on it, to have baseball have been something I liked as a kid and then faded out. But I think Pedro is the guy that kept it alive for me, and he made me never lose interest, and I made sure I was always home to watch his starts as much as I could realistically. He's not an athlete from my childhood, really. He came to the Red Sox after I graduated high school. But he is the athlete that helped me continue to love baseball into adulthood. One of the other parts of the, of the chapter, besides explaining that story, uh, you know, I mentioned is I, I, I steal, or, or directly quote, I guess is probably the better way to put it, from Michael Silverman's book with Pedro, and, and Pedro talking about um, you know, his love for flowers. Pedro, the personality... Um, is very much part of the allure. You know, it's not just the dominant pitching. And I do remember reading this New York Times story, I think it must have been back in 2005, about how much he loved gardening. And then you know, when Michael, Michael Silverman wrote that book about Pedro, he, uh, Pedro elaborated on it a little bit. And uh, This was in his time with the Mets, but there was a game where the sprinklers turned on it. Um, I believe they were at Chase Stadium. And uh, you know, Pedro doesn't run off the field, he puts his head down and goes through the sprinklers. And then he just, you know, pressurable high school kid at that point as I was, it just, um, you could tell he was different and, and, uh, and kind of transcended just the game. It, it was about something deeper. It was about life and, and, and an existence outside of life and, and to see it outside of baseball, excuse me, um, that he kind of appreciated and, and could articulate and, and, showed that other other players wouldn't you know it, it was seeing th- things about the world through pedro um beyond baseball as cheesy as it might sound i do i do uh i do believe that yeah and it's interesting because part of pedro and you know he's obviously part of the 2004 team obviously he wasn't at his peak then but he was still a significant part of that team but also, so was Theo Epstein. And you obviously spoke with Theo a lot for this book. There's a lot of good quotes from Theo in the book. But Theo, growing up a mile away from the stadium, being the person who was sort of the architect of the 2004 team and beyond, and the 2007 team as well. And, and really, if we're being honest, there's a lot of his imprint on the 2013 team there too. Him being such a key part and such a, a part of the Red Sox history now, What's that like for him as a kid who grew up a diehard Red Sox fan? Hearing Theo reflect years later, um, he was. If I had to choose one interview that was probably the best for this book, it, it, it might be Theo, and he did. He did end up contributing to, to multiple chapters. You know, it was one long conversation. Um, to, him talking about the way he's been able to appreciate the title he had with the the Cubs in 2016 compared to, to the way he was or wasn't able to with, with 2004 and 2007 as well. Yeah, it was pretty revealing. Um, and it's, it's a matter of age and time. I, I think kind of basic things, but uh, one of the more powerful quotes he gave was, was speaking about how back in 04, uh, he, he really, at that age, he didn't feel he had a sense of the impact he had on others. You know, the, the, you know, the, the way his actions would affect people, the impact uh, it would have. And, uh, you know, certainly part of the reason those teams were successful was because of how obsessive and competitive 
he was and, and to some degree how that group could be a little bit insular. You know, I mean, you know, that baseball operations group was tireless and, and really close-knit, but, you know, they could kind of feel shut off from the outside world, and which isn't always a healthy way to be. And uh, Theo connects that to modern-day events now. You know, just, it, he said very broadly, part of the problem is when people just don't realize how, how one acts affects others. Uh, you know, and, and, and talking about the dynamic he had with Larry Lucchino, they, they both told it a little differently. Um, Lucchino called it operatic and Shakespearean. Um, you know, Theo said he would not have handled the 2005 walkout as, you know, the gorilla suit and uh, briefly leaving the organization as he did the same way. You know, he, he, that was a folly of his youth, um, the way he looked at it back then, which he, he kind of had a... Uh, he didn't have broad perspective, you know, um, but that, that's understandable. But but is, but to hear him say it and and uh, and hear how he himself has thought about it was particularly enjoyable. For the people listening that don't know what you're referring to with the gorilla suit, I was working in Boston sports media at the time. I was working in radio, and it really was a circus atmosphere. Everyone was interested in the Red Sox. People were so crazy after the heartbreak of 2003 and then 2004 the the amazing run with the Yankees everyone was so entrenched it just, just there couldn't be enough Red Sox Red Sox content and when the rumor started that Theo was leaving there were reporters everywhere outside of the ballpark and it wasn't just the people who were normally covering the team it were like music stations would send people over and Theo didn't want to deal with it so he just left the building in a gorilla suit and I remember people coming on the air being like some guy in a gorilla suit's walking by and people just thought it was like part of the carnival people didn't know what was going on and then a week later we find out that was Theo leaving his job and everyone's like wait why did he do that (laughs) yeah uh, it and and there was so much craziness back then you know hearing I I had a more extensive conversation with Jed about um the pursuit of a rod and and Kurt Schilling and and how the, the visit to a rod and hotel and and the, the very famous uh, visit to Kurt Schilling's house on on Thanksgiving, um, but even even looking back on on those elements now, they they knew at the time. They Jed remembered a conversation uh, with, with Theo, uh, I think as a sat on a plane um, it, it, after one of the two. They were either, they had either just met with A-Rod trying to get A-Rod to Boston. Of course, that didn't work out. He goes to the Yankees, and uh, they did land Schilling. Just, you know, they knew at the time how absurd both those pursuits were. You know, It's just not the kind of thing you're going to see in baseball again. And I, At the time, I didn't quite realize that you know i mean i i i was at that point in high school when they're going after uh those guys and, and kind of the peak of the rivalry and uh, you will never have that again i mean that that level of mania and, and um that's the way it goes you know i don't say that with too much um you know uh, it, it's i it's not regret i'm expressing there it's it that's the way it, things work, you know, something happens and then there's a new storyline that crops up and you move on to the next, but um, they at least had some sense in the moment of how wild what they were going through was, but, but clearly they didn't, 
it, there's still a lot more they could reflect on with the benefit of hindsight. Of course, you talk about David Ortiz in the book. You list him as he's their number two item, I guess. Number two on the list is Ortiz, but there's certainly other Ortiz moments throughout the book. Recently, Theo Epstein said it was almost Ortiz that was the one that was traded. He traded Shea Hillenbrand instead. But tell me about that relationship between Theo and Ortiz, and not just Theo and Ortiz, but between Ortiz and his teammates and what he meant really for the city. Yeah, you know, I think that story, talking to other writers, Theo did mention that recently. Um, I don't believe that was the first time that was mentioned, though. Uh, It it, it hadn't been talked about for a while. I don't think I mentioned the book. Um, But there was some reaction amongst other writers here that was like, well, we remember that from the time, but I I can't say whether or not it got written about. But one of the more interesting things, I didn't dive into it too much, and I I kind of regret it. I probably should have a little bit more. Uh, There's some talk of it in there. Um, is you know who found David Ortiz uh, has been has been an interesting debate in recent years. Um, was it Pedro Martinez who who makes a call and says, "Hey, you guys got to sign Ortiz"? You know, was it kind of the urging of Larry Lucchino? Was it Theo? Um, I think all there, there's some element of all of it coming into play. Uh, the way Theo talked generally, um, it, it, we did touch on the subject briefly. It was a baseball operations decision, and it wasn't like this great prescient thing where they thought he was going to be what he became. Because certainly, if they believed that, uh, you know, they would have signed him quicker. They would have they would have been willing to pay him more money. It, it, you know, they they didn't know that he that David Ortiz would become uh, David Ortiz. You know, and, and in terms of what he meant to the team in the city, well, you know, there's the chapter on. Uh, uh, on his famous words after the, the marathon bombing, um, he this isn't in the book, but it, but it is relevant to the conversation. Mook Betts in spring training uh, talked about how it would take I don't know if he said seven people, but he said multiple people to replace Ortiz. You know, and what's happened in Boston is that people look at leadership on a base on the Red Sox and say David Ortiz needs to be replaced. The reality is that. Most of the time, you don't have so many forms of leadership wrapped up into one guy. You know, Ortiz was kind of this public face. He was also the best hitter. He was, he was everything. And usually, the leadership is, is, elements are, are kind of spread around. You might have the guy who leads by example. Austin Pedroia is one of those. Uh, but that guy might not also be the one who acts as a team spokesman. You know, so it. it looking back at Ortiz, it, it, I, I do marvel at how he became everything. To the team, I guess outside of being outside of being a great defender, you know, he 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 wore so many hats, and that you just don't see most players take on. You know, besides the hitting numbers, he uh, he brought a lot more. Of course, prior to '67 and 2004, and everything in between, was Ted Williams, and Ted remains one of the icons of the sport, and so much of Ted Williams from the just outrageous hitting numbers to the military service remains part of legend. I'm curious if you felt like you uncovered anything different or found yourself learning something that you didn't know about Williams during this process. So the, the Williams chapter, and just the topic in general, was, was kind of the one that was almost most intimidating. I remember I do a show on Sundays um, during the baseball season, and Dan Shaughnessy uh, was doing that show last season. I, I think I'd accepted the book assignment, but hadn't really gotten underway, but I was talking to him about it briefly. And you know, the conversation up between us, you know, 
what, what new can I say about Ted Williams? Um, and yeah, Dan said, look, nothing. You know, it, it, it has all been said. Um, and, and that was kind of the most daunting thing about the book were, were these topics that have been, been so thoroughly researched. Uh, and, and I was not going to be able to, to match that. That was not the intent of the publisher. Um, but as a reporter, you, you do want, you don't want to just regurgitate. Uh, you, you, you want to present something new, ideally. Um, and, you know, I, whether I did a great job with it or not, I guess that's, that's for the reader to determine. But the thing that, that stuck out to me about Williams, kind of the more I thought about it, um, was, was the element of myth involved, even from when he, the time he was, he was playing. Um, and, and I look at it kind of in comparison to Ortiz. I think 50 years from now, easier for people to know David Ortiz, to really see what he did because of the amount of video and, and the accessibility of those videos online. You know, you can watch full games, you can watch uh, everything, right? I mean, countless at bats, certainly from the latter half of his career, maybe not going all the way back to 2003. But with, with Williams, uh, my visions of him and, and what I've seen of him uh, visually, it, it, it's, been, it's little clips, you know, and, and that's even in the time he was playing, because of the era, that's the way he existed to people was through word of mouth um, and and lore, and he, so he so he's always been that way, uh, and 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 that that's not gonna happen again. You know, never mind the idea of someone hitting four oh six. It's uh, the the amount that's kind of left up to the imagination because that's what it is for you and me. You know, we didn't see the guy. But we hear stories, and we have these little video clips, and that's it. That, that's as close as we get to him. Um, whereas I think people years from now are going to have an easier time reliving, to some degree, the greatness of players. Uh, just because of, if I had to boil it down, video, but technology overall. You had some nice chapters in the book about the other Hall of Famers that the Red Sox have produced. And not just the players, but the broadcasters and the writers. And I'm curious what that means to you as a writer covering the Red Sox, knowing what that legacy means. Yeah, it's, it's the last chapter in the book. Uh, you can argue that it shouldn't even been in the book at all. I, I, I do think the, the, it made me slightly uncomfortable or worried because you don't want a naval case. You, know, you, don't, you don't want to make it about um, some element of you. Uh, you know, the, the media and the writers are there uh, to pass on the game. You know, it, it, there, there are these connections that, that do get established between fans and writers. And I, and I think because it, there have been so many legendary writers here, and particularly uh, Peter Gammons, you know, it, 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 it kind of starts with him and, and the origin of uh, Diamond Notes and, and, and the uh, you know, modern baseball writing. Not, not every element of modern baseball writing is tied to him. Um, but it's here in Boston and New York, um, you know, media media has been a different beast, and I, and I, I say that in a good way and a bad way. And it was, it was a conversation I had with with Theo um, about him growing up, you know, and, and how he, he remembered fighting with his brother over the sports page, you know, and 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 he rattled off all the different Globe writers that that he would read, and um, you know, I'm a for, former Herald guy, so I uh, I certainly believe in the work the Herald does, and. Uh, and when it comes to sports, you know, the, the battle of those two papers for years and years 
it, it's an interesting time to note it, and I did note it in the book, you know, that it's kind of the end of an era. The, the Herald going through bankruptcy, um, I, they are no longer traveling to writers to the game, but I believe this was the last team being covered by multiple outlets that would have multiple writers from that outlet at every game. So the Herald and the Globe at every road game up until this year would have at least two writers there, which is a phenomenal expenditure on a baseball team. It is not cheap to put a writer on the road, but that's, it just speaks to the consumption of the Red Sox, you know, the, the, the effort these, those two outlets would go to. Um, and now the Herald is on some road trips sending one, so you're not seeing two anymore, but it's just, uh, it's rare. It, it, it was, you know, there are some where the newspaper would, would stop traveling entirely, and, and the Herald and the Globe are still sending two everywhere, uh, which is kind of amazing to think about, uh, you know, what that says about, Boston fans and how much they want to hear about their team, you know. What was the last item cut? What was story number 51 that didn't make it? There was originally a chapter on Tech and Wakefield, um, which I thought been worthwhile and fitting uh, just because of, again, a little bit of that recency bias. At the same time, wasn't sure exactly where I wanted to go. I never really settled on, on a, um approach there. And, you know, there, there was a point in time where... Uh, Combining Reislin and Evans was talked about, and well, it, may, it might have made more sense to separate them out, um, and that's what we ended up doing. So th- there were a lot of tough decisions in here, you know. And, and, and the rank, the book is ranked. The chapters are are in an order from one to fifty. Um, you know, why is Harry Gannis forty and Dice K forty one? I'd have a hard time if I'm being fully honest with you. I, 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 at a certain point, it does become very arbitrary. Um, you know, the I, I should say. Researching the Harry Gannis chapter was one was one of the most enjoyable. Um, to it's another one of those things. Well, you know the Gannis Arena, and you know that he was a, he was a prominent local advocate. When you start to dig into it and read all these old newspaper articles and how the Greek Orthodox Church responded uh, after his death, um, it, it, and and kind of the the, the nationwide sense of mourning uh, that it inspired, uh, you know, it's there, there's there's a there's a lot that uh, if, if, you, if you hadn't been previously exposed to it, it is, is really fascinating to discover. And that, that, you know, I think it would have been a different experience if I had known, all, known everything that I had written about beforehand. Uh, you know, it, it, the, the journey of discovery is, is uh, a part of this book for me. Let's move off the book for just a moment and talk about the current state of the Red Sox. At the time of recording, they have a two-game lead over the Yankees. They've been very good all year, but they still seem incomplete. As the trade season approaches, who do you think that the Red Sox might be targeting via trade? What player type or what specific player do you think they may go after? I've long been of the opinion, going back to the winter, that they needed bullpen help. And I think with Carson Smith now out for the year, or at least very likely out for the year, uh, they will probably need to add somebody. Joe Kelly has been really excellent. It seems he's finally turned a corner believer. Um, he's about to turn 30 years old. Took him a while, but but uh, he, he seems to have reached an elite level. But beyond him and Craig Kimbrell, I, I think they probably need one other setup man, uh, you know, high leverage reliever to position themselves at least for the playoffs. You know, they could probably win the division again, or, or certainly win a wild card with the bullpen the way it is. But I would look for them to to go out and, and get a reliever, and um, I, I'd be surprised if anything else took priority. Uh, you know, they 
they've had some rotation question marks like Drew Pomerantz. He hasn't been what you expect, but they, they probably don't need to add a starting pitcher the way things stand now. Do you think that reliever they might be interested in might be Rasiel Iglesias in Cincinnati? The cost might be... Uh, the Dave Dombrowski's track record here has been lower cost guys in terms of prospects, and, and uh, that's at Kimbrell's side. I mean, Dombrowski's dealt away plenty of prospects in terms of the mid-season reliever acquisitions that he's had. Um, it hasn't been the biggest name, and my gut feeling would be we're looking at something like that again where, where it's not a knock-your-socks-off type of reliever uh, because they just don't have the prospects to spare. You know, the farm system, uh, he's traded a bunch away. Michael Chavis, top position player prospects on a 80-game uh, PED suspension. I believe it's 80. Um, you have t- uh, Jay Groom, who was uh, like their top pick, uh, out for Tommy John surgery. So it's just they're not threadbare, but they're thin. And I think they're going to, to operate with that in mind. The other thing that will come into play with some guys is money because they're right up against the $237 million luxury tax mark, and ownership is pretty pretty clearly doesn't want to go over it. I can't blame them. Um, I can and I can't. You know, they're, They have the highest payroll in baseball. Would it really hurt them to go over 237 No, they, no their, their profits will still be plenty healthy, but... Uh, it's it's a tricky balance when your farm system is not great and uh, you also don't have a lot of money available to you to add somebody. You've been listening to Evan Drellick. Evan covers the Red Sox for NBC Sports Boston and is also the author of the book The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Boston Red Sox. Evan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks, Russ. Appreciate it.